Well, there you go, Alvin Lee cranking out his familiar, now familiar lyrics there from 10 years after. I'd love to change the world, just didn't know what to do. Had some tremendous foresight into the world's problems. Uh, oft, I quote the previous lyrics there everywhere are freaks and harrys, dykes and antifa fairies. Tell me, where is sanity? Well, I'd like to think maybe we can grasp a little bit of it around here. Uh, glad you're along for the ride. You too, Chris, joining us right here at the start of the program. As usual, kind of my co-host, Chris. Um, Thank you very much. And a lot of, you know, interesting things shaping up. I don't have anything really on the super agenda to discuss. Nothing's hot and heavy. There seems to be a lull in the air. They've uh, pumped the markets back up a little bit it verifies what we've been saying for so long about how the fang stocks were driving everything facebook apple uh amazon google alphabet netflix whatever uh but yesterday towards the end of the day somebody came in and bought a a, a proverbial ship high in transit load of apple stock and it pushed the nasdaq up not much just barely over into the green and then they parlayed that and brought the regular market back up just a little bit over excuse me over dead zero and uh this morning they seem to have stabilized it a little bit but that doesn't take away from mr lee's prophetic lyrics tax the rich feed the poor till there are no rich no more and that's what's happening in france because now because of the backlash over there with the yellow vests and all of the commotion they've been causing for about the last month every weekend and the backlash from the politicians and they're no doubt scared that it's gonna uh, uh percolate into other adjacent countries which are all kind of tender boxes too and so macron capitulated and he cut back the tax and he started doing all of these social adjustments in the budget chris and that's thrown their whole budget killed out of kilter with brussels so now they got to go in and deal like italy's been dealing with trying to have all this free stuff and put the screws on the people and here's the reactions and you can just see it playing out right in front of us man well you know roger that uh populist uprising posed as the yellow vest that were provided to them, I think, by the government. So they'd be easy to pick out of a crowd. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like making them march in red coats like they did when they came over here. Pretty preposterous and nonsensical, I would observe. But uh, whenever you provide your own antagonist uh, to stir the pot and to ignite the flames of revolution in your country uh, by uh, giving the populist easy-to-notice high-visibility yellow vest or orange vest, the case may be, like the uh, jumpsuits over in Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq, and Syria. Uh, the Jihadi John's outfit, as they like to guard them up. Uh, it's pretty insane to believe there's not nefarious forces behind pulling the strings of the puppets of the populist so-called uprising out on the street that are really being provoked and prodded and poked in the eye and forced to get out there to try to oppose insane policies 
launched and deployed against them by these so-called EU, which is really the global bankster gangsters and their sycophantic elite leaders that uh, are the puppet masters or monsters, more accurately, of the new wave of the new world order. So, well, see, I don't, I don't think, I think it was a kind of a spontaneous thing that started. I think it truly is a grassroots uprising, and I don't think that the tax issue is the reason. I think it's a whole accumulation of reasons, with France being at the forefront of the EU, no doubt. I mean, they've, look, Paris is the number one Grand Lodge in the world, Okay. Uh, they started this whole thing in trials back in France in the French Revolution. So it is a Petri dish for sure, but I don't believe they wanted all this in their own backyard. Uh, it's bringing an awful lot of attention to them, to the to the sorriness of the agenda, to the fact that it doesn't work, to the illegal immigration, which I feel is really the bigger problem than the taxes. I think the tax is just the straw that broke the camel's back. But uh, they obviously don't want this over there. I can't imagine them provoking it uh, uh, to this extent because it endangers them in so many other areas with all these. Well, you got Spain. You got all the Catalan, the people that want to secede, all the things that's happening there. You got Italy. You got Greece. You got Brussels. You got Germany. I mean, they're all just little tin uh, uh, powder kegs waiting to have a match thrown on them. And mostly it's because of this immigration and the stress on the budgets from the countries that were already stressed that they had to do magical Goldman Sachs derivative accounting to get them into the EU in the first damn place. Okay. And that's done nothing but exacerbated over the years. Now they hot piled the immigrants on there, all of the strains, social and financial that those little rascals put on there. And, uh, it's just, uh, man, we're at a real unique time. The yellow vests were to me, just kind of a catalyst. We'll see where else it goes. I'll tell you the one a thing. Time, yes, sir. A time of escalating violence. Some would have well, yeah, it, uh, well, there's no doubt there's been a lot of escalating violence over there from the stuff I've seen and pictures and videos. Um, well, now, I'm still harken back to Clarence and Clinton's, uh strategy of tension, be it positive and negative, pressure from above, pressure from below, as it were, which provokes and basically leaves no other response for the people than to put themselves in harm's oh, absolutely. way. As absolutely. And the French, you know, they've got a little bit of a history of this revolution stuff. Um, so they now, do, don't they? Yeah, they do. Uh, and you go back to, I mean, the, the Illuminati's first trial of debauching the monetary supply was in the, led up to the French Revolution. Uh, that was the whole thing. Liberty, equality, fraternity. What are we saying today? Liberty, uh, you know, we've got to be free. You're taking away our freedoms. You're a Nazi. Equality, let's do kumbaya. You're a racist. All this identity politics. Fraternity, let's all get together. I mean, it's the same mantra, man. It's just different words. And words are the fabric of thoughts, the means um, they use, the schemes they use to deploy to try to deceive the ignorant masses into doing what they do with their Hegelian or Hegelian dialectic, dualectic, the false paradigm and the false two choices, which lead to the same eventual conclusion delusion that they wanted to heap on the public in the first place when they started these insane tactics. Um, very interesting. I listened to a, caught a brand new SGT report over there. 
Uh, and uh, this morning on Silver Doctors, it's extremely interesting and, dare I say, refreshing and maybe even encouraging in light of what we're talking about over there with Macron and the leadership void in all these globalist-oriented countries. And Sean somehow has dug up this guy that is has, was the uh, campaign and uh, photographer and was behind the scenes at all this stuff with Trump. And he goes into his story on how he got to be that way, he just took some nice pictures and shot him to the White House, and they started using him. And it morphed into where he was kind of the campaign. I don't know if he's how much he's done with the presidency here, but this is a fascinating interview. And the picture he paints of Trump, he's a South Carolina guy. He's an Oriental uh, uh, ethnicity, obviously. I'm not sure which which one, but he's obviously Oriental, but he's probably a couple of generation U.S guy you want me to play a little bit of this i just have to pick some out and see if i can uh get a little because it's really interesting let's see here yes thank you. but the difference play it again, is uh, hold on pictures i took of trump because i was a fan of his and i actually here we go we'll see if i can't get uh emailed it to his staff and never even thought anything of it lo and behold like two weeks later i get a handwritten letter from trump saying gene love the photos thank you very much didn't think anything of it, but then he invited me to shoot one event. But here's the story that, that you need to tell people about. The interesting thing was never, ever be afraid to feel stupid. Because after that first event, there was another event like two days later. So I was invited to shoot the first event, but not the second event. So basically, I just woke up at 4 a.m., put on a suit, drove down two, three hours to where the event was, and I just showed up for work and like basically uninvited. And uh, it was Corey Lewandowski. I'll never forget it. Looks at me and I'm like, oh, geez, he's going to kick me out. Looks at me, goes, hey, come here. I was like, oh, he's going to kick me out. I felt so stupid there. And he said, Gene, I, we don't need you at this event, but down the road, there's another event. So if you could meet us down there, we'll, we'll see you then. And so basically I invited myself and I just never left. And after that second event, they started using me. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. Look, I think there's some div divine intervention and div divine inspiration. Uh, maybe just even what you just described there. Magic was happening with that campaign. Tell us a little bit about the real man, because I would have to believe if one was behind the scenes on the Hillary Clinton campaign, one, uh, one would see uh, warts and some very huge character flaws and anger. She seems like a very angry woman. And this president, this man seems like the polar opposite. Yes. This is what Trump was really like behind the scenes. And I say this without any, like, without any reservation of it. Because um, my career as a photographer was already doing fine. I never needed this. And I don't need to lie one way or the other. I don't need to lie to say, make up things about Trump. And I don't need to make up lies to say how wonderful I thought he was. I could speak the truth. But I was there behind the scenes. And I am telling you that this man is authentically a really, really nice guy and a person that loves our country. Um, if I could really give a, a quick, uh, something I talked about in the book. I know I'm the type of person that if I see, walk into a room, I see someone famous, I'll like find my way and like, that, that person in that room, I almost beeline there. Trump would walk into a room full of celebrities and he would not beeline towards a celebrity or go there to shake his hand. 
Trump would walk into a room, and I seen him backstage where there were, it was like a closed room. Trump would walk backstage, and he would spy out who the the men in uniform were. And this was with no one else looking on. It was backstage; the press wasn't allowed back there. And he would beeline towards these for uh, these service members, first responders, and he'd go there and shake their hands, and he would ignore anyone else in the room, like a celebrity that people would think that he would automatically go to. He's he's a wonderful. Wonderful man and a very nice man. You know, we saw uh, an example of that after the uh, shooting. I believe was that in Pittsburgh. Uh, I believe it was in Pennsylvania. And there's that video of the doctors and nurses uh, right. in the bowels of the hospital basement there when he comes off the elevator, and they're so they're so excited to see him, and they say thank you, Mr. President, and he goes out of his way to stop and come back and shake each and every one of their hands. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you, thank you. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you all very much. No, thank you, sir. Great job. Thank you, Mr. President. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Well, well, I just, uh, I'll stop that there in the middle of that video. Isn't that interesting? I really encourage y'all to, uh, see if I can crank that down a little bit, encourage you to go listen to that. I'll post it on the show notes today over on CastBox, but that is uh, a spirit-lifting interview for 40 minutes to hear somebody that was ingrained behind the scenes that saw things that other people didn't see, and to hear his effervescent, the whole four, it's a 40-minute interview, and he's just positive the whole time about that and what he saw and what he experienced and felt. He's, uh, you know, obviously focused in like a laser beam on the political process, but I thought that was an extremely interesting insight um, from behind the scenes on somebody that was around this guy and uh, has those really glowing things to say. Chris, what did you think about that? Roger, I think it is a testimony to his master strategizer position that he has employed throughout his career. He has always been a man that supports the people, the people who make him great, make him successful. Uh, No matter what color or sex they are, he is across the board the working people's speaker, the representative who actually cares and appreciates them for what contributions they make to liberty, freedom, and Americanism. Not this fake. This is the he speaks of. Yeah, not fake, and that comes across. And it's sad to me that he's been demonized so much for being such a good person and evidently having such good goals. And the other thing, something came up this weekend that I thought was real. You know, you look for things that don't make sense, right, that conflict. And so, remember, we talked about it a couple of times, Dave Janda's statement, Dr. Dave Janda, uh, on his father working with Trump years, decades ago, when he was still at home, on building some major projects. And his comment, when he came home and told his son, even talking about it in that environment, this guy is a detail-oriented guy. You know, he wants to know every little meticulous detail. And this weekend... Uh, Trump and Tillerson, the former member, the guy that was head of Exxon, that they tapped as being Secretary of State, that he fired. Uh, Tillerson's evidently got a book out, and they got into a urinating contest. And uh, he was saying that Trump was stupid and didn't read anything. So that's a that's a glaring inconsistency from somebody I 
considered to be a pretty reliable source, Janda, from a personal standpoint of decades ago, okay? So now the question is, is he not reading all these reports from the State Department and all that stuff because he knows it's BS, and he's in there looking at his own details and coming up with his own facts so that he can make more conclusive, accurate decisions, knowing he's getting fed pablum from especially the State Department, obviously from Department of Justice, and probably from the Treasury Department. Well, I don't think it can be overlooked, and it's not insignificant, that Trump did not let that uh, assault on his uh, intellect go unnoticed, and he returned laudatory comments to Mr. Tillerson uh, in spades, one would observe, uh, and pretty much smacked him down and slapped him upside his stupid head for having the audacity to uh, make attacks ad hominem on the president without any supported substantiation. Um, the other thing that was very interesting that I noted in this interview is he said Trump literally only sleeps four hours a night. He's, he said he's got incredible energy. He said, I never saw him tired. He he's, uh, uh, just sleeps a couple hours a night, and the guy's just really, really quite a guy behind the scenes. Okay, so I'd like I've to just... Have some <laughs> do what? I say I'd like to have some of whatever vitamins he's taken. Yep, yep. Well, uh, he's obviously got some pretty good mitochondria, um, but... And I'm just so pleased to see that we've got somebody in there like him because the the other fork in the road, buddy, we wouldn't have had any joy in Mudville. Okay, There would be no hope. Now we have at least a little hope. Uh, I hope it's not hopium, but uh, he is radically different because he is not a bar attorney, although he is lawfully very savvy. Some observed early on before he ran for office that he was sophisticated in his knowledge of law and wasn't the usual unsophisticated, easy to prey on, and therefore was savvy, I think was the term they used to describe him. And thank goodness that he is somewhat. I just wish he was a little less allied with, at least apparently, to Israel. Well, I think that's the big flaw in the ointment for a lot of us is that that joined at the hip relationship there and what is going to come out of it. Uh, they got there. They got a bunch of problems over there in Israeli right now. Netanyahu got another charge approved against him uh, for all of this uh, shenanigans. He's been pulling over there bribery and with one of the main TV networks and all kind of for favorable coverage and just the usual, you know. Uh, we'll see if they don't fall on their own. I don't know if I mentioned this. I saw it. I meant to. Remember here a couple of weeks ago when they blew up a bus? The people from Gaza blew up a bus, and it caused so much turmoil in Netanyahu's cabinet, and one of the big hawks resigned as Secretary of Defense or something, and he's had nothing but turmoil ever since. Have you Have you kept up with any of that, Chris? Well, I don't remember that one, but I do recall that there was quite a bit of stuff with his wife having some particularly financial profitable interest and some other uh, nefarious things going around. Of course, uh, Vary and Exer, the husband and wife, are really one as far as the law is concerned. So if he's blaming his wife for it, he's blaming himself well, for it because 
one do something without the knowledge of their mate it's uh, is pretty preposterous it's both of them and, and she was her her deals were having to do with running the house and stealing money from the food allotment and saving got saving wine bottles so she could cash in and get the deposits this is a prime minister of israel's wife saving wine bottles so she can cash them in and get the deposits Absurd. Okay. Well, what I was going to say was not was more on the incident of that bus because we were led to believe it was down in southern Gaza, and they hit the bus with a rocket. Well, I saw a video of that. They had whoever did it had some kind of real much more modern than a bottle rocket. All right, and it was down in the southern part, and they showed them uh, uh, looking over this kind of moderate hill, and there was a grove of trees, and there was a military convoy it wasn't just a thing of civilians it was full of military and it was one of these big buses and it showed them pull the bus out from behind this grove of trees kind of you could see through it but it was some trees there fairly sparse and around like an island to the other side that was close to the hill where they were taking this video from and buddy they popped that thing okay i mean they popped that whole bus all right and you they didn't give it on the news the severity of that little attack but evidently the weapon that was used scared the hell out of the israelis because they came a ceasefire in gaza and then that caused the backlash in in yo-yo's uh yo-yo yahoo's uh cabinet and all this stuff so they got their own share of problems over there right now but evidently heads blood the the syria connection and okay go ahead chris I was only going to say it sounds like a man-pad, shoulder-mounted laser missile device with somebody who planted the target on the bus to transmit the signal so it could home in on it and hit it precisely where it hit it because it was a military objective. This also could also be a military event perpetrated by the Israel to try to frame the blame on somebody else like they're pretty well noted for doing. I don't think so. The backlash was too severe inside politically for him, and it wasn't that far away. Uh, it wasn't one of these, like, you know, gazillion. They were fairly close to that bus when they popped it. So, uh, anyway, uh, all these, you know, complex situations and uh, that come to bear on the whole global geopolitical situation, and that just shows you that Hezbollah is uh, having some success at getting weapons in over there to them. So, uh, you know, good for the Palestinians. I'm sorry those I have felt sorry for those people for about 40 years since I first started becoming cognizant of what, what was going on over there and getting some real truth and yet having a curiosity to learn about it. Uh, I'm going to see if I can play this patriotic thing here, Chris. I'm going to see if you... We're all Palestinians now, Roger. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you if you don't get behind them, you're going to be. Because I guarantee you that's the plan they've got for everybody right there. Um, I'm going to play this. It's kind of short. I hadn't seen it in a lot of years. It popped up the other night when I was looking around. Uh, a absolutely fantastic patriotic speech out of the movies from probably back in the... 20s maybe 30s and i'm not going to tell you who it is but some of you have heard this before and know what it is but i'll play it anyway and we'll talk about it when we're done i'll have to get the levels right here let's see 
Okay, looking around at people. He's about to speak here. Little melodrama. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Well, there you go, huh? I wonder if any of you know who that was. Jim Ram joined us right there. Always a pleasure to have you along for the that ride. Hey, Jim. That was Charlie Chaplin. That's exactly who that was. And uh, I knew that was going to be uh, I knew that was going to be what you're going to play before you even started it. You did, huh? <laughs> 
Morning, Jim. Are you reading my mail Good again? Morning. Or maybe you're getting my What's unseen that? email. <laughs> No, actually, I just thought when you talked about it and said it was from the 1920s, I said, that's got to be Charlie Chaplin. I think, wasn't that called The Dictator or I think it was like called The Dictator, and I stumbled on it over on Mike Rivera's site, just that little clip. And there at the last, I didn't like what he said about doing away with national borders and the whole globalist scene, but that was a very inspirational talk, was it not? Oh, yeah, yeah. I have posted that thing several times on different places, and uh, great talk, great speech. <laughs> So how you doing, Jimbo? We haven't heard from you in a while. I always neglect to mention you, and I and I've always feel negligent when I remember. But it's uh, the times passed by then. How's everything going for you? Oh, things are going good. We're uh, experiencing the beginning of winter here in Ohio. It's, yeah. uh, it's about in the, it's in the twenties, but it's a nice sunny day. It's supposed to get up to forty or thirty nine earlier or later on. Um, out here feeding the horses right now, but uh, things are going well. Just busier than one arm paper hanger. Yeah. And uh, normally just, you know, I've been listening all to pretty much every show, just haven't had a chance to call in. But I was out here in the barn and said, I'm going to call in and talk about Charlie. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did because I didn't I really just, have anything. You know, I'm just kind of, in a, I'm, I'm a little bit in a catatonic state. There's so many things that are important that are happening. And we've hit a lull here uh, today because they got the markets pumped back up. Don't expect that to happen. Uh, be there for very long but uh, it's an exciting time there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on that many of us never dreamed we'd see this day people that are old in the tooth in this movement i don't think any of us could have dreamed we'd see these days 25 years ago yeah i think there's a lot of manipulation going on yep every way everything's manipulated in the beginnings of it yep yep <laughs> So uh, the whole cyber thing, did you get a chance to watch uh, the uh, latest Cliff High video yet? I got it off your uh, link from yesterday, but I haven't had a chance to watch it. I started watching that other one um, with the uh, speaker at the Hillsdale College event and just barely got into it and something came up and I had to stop. Yeah. <laughs> I have a hard time watching videos. It just seems like never, never have able to get through them. Right. But uh, I'm planning on it. Well, both those two are worth watching uh, uh, for sure and spending your time on them. Um, I, if, his, if his information is correct, we got, you know, we get everything in life is yin and yang, okay? And yep, uh, yep. we got some more pain in front of us, but we got a hell of an opportunity in front of us if his stuff proves to be correct. And Cliff's not always correct, and he'd be the first one to tell you that. But uh, we shall see. We got a couple of very interesting months ahead of us and into the mid to the latter part of next year. I hate to think we got to wait another year, but we might. Could be. I don't know. It's just, you know, I, I give up trying to second guess these things. Yep. It seems like every time you do, they throw a curve in it and something else happens. Well, what, what, what overridingly hits me is how, how much power these guys have got behind the scenes that we never had a way to estimate before and still don't to some extent. Well, I'm going to go ahead and mute out because I'm out here in the barn trying to yeah. get the door open. That's okay. Very yeah, All right. The ground's frozen up underneath it. All right. Well, so, go uh, ahead and go to work. Uh, I'm going to play this. I'm going to make a bunch of noise. All right. Well, I'm going to play another little clip that I had queued up. I hadn't played it in a long time. I hadn't thought about it. Uh, it's kind of football-oriented as we're in that time of year. And I stumbled on this years ago when I, I think we were over at uh, 
ex-wife number two at that point. And it was just a little clip that I saw one night of this local football uh, guy out in Texas that had pulled off a miraculous victory in his game. But his speech was so inspirational that I, I grabbed it and recorded it. Hadn't played it in quite a while. Have you ever heard this before, Chris, the Apollo Hester speech? Well, I know Chris is with us. He must be muted. Okay, well, I'll play it anyway. I'm sure most of y'all hadn't. We got some new people along the ride, and I don't think I've played it in a long time. But this is just another one of these types of talks that's just uh, you, you get the guy's enthusiasm and his sincerity uh, by uh, the conversation that transpires. So this guy's name, a young, sharp, black guy is named Apollo Hester. Here with Apollos Hester, wide receiver for the Patriots. You guys had one heck of a game tonight. Uh, how'd it go? I mean, it was going a little back and forth. You guys knew it was going to be a tough dogfight out there, and it was. So, what were you guys able to do to come back and win this thing? All right. Well, at first we started slow. We started real slow, and you know that's all right. That's okay because sometimes in life you're going to start slow. That's okay. We, we we told ourselves, hey, we're going to start slow. We're going to keep going fast. We're going to start slow, but we're always always going to finish fast. No matter what the score was, we're going to finish hard. We're going to finish fast. Yeah, they had us the first half. I'm not going to lie. They had us. We weren't defeated, but they had us. But it took guts. It took an attitude. That's all it takes. That's all it takes to be successful is an attitude. And that's what our coach told us. He said, he said, hey, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. You're going to go out there. You're going to battle. You're going to fight. You're going to do it for one. You're going to do it for one another. Do it for each other. You're going to do it for yourself. You're going to do it for us. And you're going to go out with this win. And we believe that. We truly did. And it's, it's an awesome feeling. It's an awesome feeling when you truly believe that you're going to be successful. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the scoreboard, you're going to be successful because you put in all the time, all the effort, all the hard work and you know that it's going to pay off and if it doesn't pay off you continue to give God the glory if you still lose the game you continue to get each other's back and that and that's what we realized regard when or lose we realized that we were gonna be all right it was gonna be okay we're gonna we're gonna keep smiling it was awesome awesome Paul's always got a smile on his face talk about awesome. attitude this guy's got attitude awesome. you guys can't tell uh, we met earlier this week and uh, this was the enthusiasm I saw it's the mindset Yes, ma'am. Hey, you can do anything you put your mind to. Never give up on your dreams. Keep smiling. No matter what you're going through, if you fall down, just get up. If you can't get up, your friends are there to help you up. Your mom is there. Your daddy's there. God's there. Hey, I'm there to help you up. You're there. It's going to be all right. Just keep smiling, man. Man, along with all the football highlights you guys have gotten tonight, some motivational speaking courtesy of Apollo Sester. Man, great game tonight, buddy. Yes, so yes, Thank happy you. for you guys. You. Uh, this guy with one touchdown and a whole lot of sass coming out here. For the Eastview Patriots. All right, guys, we'll send it back to you. Wow. All right, a couple of comments that come to mind immediately. Number one is that's in the interview hall of fame. Can that was please incredible. Please have that guy on every we single week. For every show. The second thing that comes to mind is I don't know about you, but I'm ready to run through a brick wall. If he doesn't make it as I mean, a football player, me up. he should be an inspirational speaker. That is incredible. Pretty cool. Pretty cool little interview. Have you ever heard that before, Chris? I guess Chris is off doing something, okay? Jim's off fixing a door in the barn. Uh, you never heard Apollo before? That's a pretty cool talk, man. I wish you could see the video of that kid smiling. Uh, just a big old grin on his face and thanking God. And, you know, just get up. Just get up. Your friends are there to help you. Your mom and dad's there to help you. I Hell, I'm there to help you. Just get up. Okay. <laughs> That was isn't good. There, isn't there somebody else that has an attitude, attitude, attitude speech? 
Yeah, right. Well, he kind of, you know, I draw a parallel with that to where we are and what we do in our political uh, frustrations and, and accomplishments and, and, and what we've come to learn and how we can come to bear it where it has an effect on a larger scale. And, and I, I get very inspired when I hear that uh, Apollo Hester, especially in the light of that, because I've been trying to do that for so many years. And uh, it just, it's got its ups and downs, okay? But the thing I've had to come to realize is this platform, this little network, people like Jim and Chris and the others out there that listen that don't contact us uh, at all or on any kind of a regular basis, we're all in this together, see? Because we know and understand things that other people don't know and understand, and that makes us different, okay? And you can't change the way you think without changing the way you live, all right. And so we've all crossed that barrier and we've got this additional insight and it, it gives us a bond, a common bond uh, that it just the other folks just don't have. They don't have the information. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the total understanding. So uh, we got this little platform. We got a beachhead here. OK. And uh, it it thrills me to no end. And that's why I often say, honest to goodness, how much I appreciate each and every one of you out there because you don't know. You've just stumbled into this, maybe. You're seeing how it affects your life, and you're trying to untie all the knots. You don't know what we've gone through to this point to find you. Well, he just tried to kill me twice as all. <laughs> Destroyed my family and stole my house and car. <laughs> Two cars. <laughs> well, don't forget the trials of Job, Chris. I'm sharing them with him. Yep. Well, a lot of us have been persecuted in one way or another by this beast system. We got a handle on it now. We can bring them at bay and even tame them, honestly. Um, and we just got to get people to believe they cannot get through the mental curtain of fear that they've been conditioned with and intimidated into that, that I think is the biggest challenge is getting people through that curtain to realize it's all a mirage. Now, man behind the curtain. unfortunately, Chris is having to feel the whip of the of the man behind the curtain because he, you know, didn't catch him in time and whatever the circumstances are. Obviously, you got them all PO'd at you for, you know, asking questions and being one of those pesky truth seekers. But the average person out there, if you can catch this before you get mired in battle with these goons, I think we can make your life a lot easier. I believe time has shown us that uh, in the fact that if there was going to be any backlashes to this, that we'd long since seen them from seven years into the project. But when you really start to understand it, they're so terrified when they're exposed on especially this level here because it totally, totally shows their fraud. It shows who they are what they are, how they accomplish things, and what they were trying to accomplish. It shows all those important things about them. And honestly, when you think about it, when you submit that affidavit to the head guy up there, the Secretary of State, and they can't rebut it, they've, they've actually convicted themselves. Tacitly, 
but they've convicted themselves just as sure as if they were in a court. They are in a court, an administrative court. Well, and U.S. versus Twill and Horton Law Pruden, whenever somebody gives you a material question and it remains unanswered, they're speaking in silence, sub silentio, tacitly affirming all allegations you have made because they cannot deny your truths because they don't know your mind, your mens reis. They cannot project that they know because unless they can read minds and there'd have to be some credible proof that they have that special ability, which the only ones that I know of that can do that are true psychics or the creator that knows the minds and hearts of all men. Well, silence deems consent. I guess you guys remember Brent telling us. I didn't know till Brent told us that day where that came from. Henry VIII. And uh, he went out and had this same infestation problem with the monasteries and the Catholic Church and all the shenanigans that were going on back then. And I guess he pulled all the Catholic bishops in the country off into a big room somewhere and started accusing them with the findings of this uh, uh, research that he had had done so that he could use it politically and spoke right there to them and accused them of stuff and said, silence deems consent. None of them spoke up, man. That's how it got written into our common law. Silence deems consent to this day. And when you tell them up there that you're not this politically group of people that were given a secondary citizenship after the war to bring in the civil law and they can't deny it, it exposes everything. It really does. I got to tip my hat to Brian Howard for taking the initiative and doing all of these little oh, yeah. extra projects that he's done because I know what's involved, not only personally, but having to go in there and go through all those gyrations. But, you know, it's not very often in our movement, in all honesty, when somebody comes up with something totally new, brand new ground. Okay, and that's what Brian has done. He's he's dug up brand new information that heretofore, to my knowledge, has never been available in our community before. That's because of his tenacious not quitting but pressing forward. Uh, your uh, negative vermin, your uh, versus positive rebuttal is very, very important. If you don't deny every claim in their declaration, their proclamation of false arrest, their versions of facts, and offer some evidence to prove your version, your narrative instead, then it theirs stands as truth unrebutted because you didn't deny and aver their allegations. That's right. You got to always be on your toes. Well, that's the one thing that I think that the affidavit up there does is it covers your butt from doing all those little things. I think you got an overriding covering if it's on file with the secretary of state. Um, that's just my suspicion, but it sure, uh, seems to bear itself out. And I've thought many hours about this over the years. Uh, they've popped gold down a couple of dollars and they've got both the NASDAQ and the Dow up in very slim positive territory, but, uh, Europe's closed and has evidently taken a dive. So that'll probably affect it as we go into the afternoon. Uh, financial wizards, they are the wizards of everything, aren't they? How they control it how they're able to pull this illusion off. It's just exactly like the Wizard of Oz. 
I mean, it is the man behind magic. the curtain. Go ahead, Chris. Magic. It is magic. That's what they call it, too. And uh, But it's coming to an end. They're getting exposed at uh, just about every turn. Um, just... I, I, as I was telling Jim, I could have taken a day off today because I feel spent, you know, mentally kind of spent. We've we've had so many important things happening in the last seven to ten days, uh, and then all the well, all of a sudden it's just like, whew, gosh, there's nothing really. Uh, uh, it's all happening, but it's not happening out on the front of the stage. It's happening back behind the curtain. Um, so where else uh, you got anything else you want to talk about particularly today Chris? Well, I'm looking at all the machinations the goings on behind the scenes of the Hillary Clinton gang and the other sycophants and uh fixers. In fact, there was a quite an intriguing article this morning. I think it was Joe Giannova, Giannova who was outing the new so-called uh, William P Barr uh, AG selection, a Bush croning, uh, and the so-called master fixer. Now, I don't know how one could be any more masterful at fixing than Muleier, the uh, Rosenstein, Rob the Rat appointed a special prosecutor AG, who is a master fixer. Of course, uh, Steve Wolfson in our town is the master fixer, um, who has pulling the strings, the puppets behind the thing to make all his weaponized units, much like the weaponized agencies of government against we the people, uh, do their bidding. They keep them compartmentalized. They may not realize they're part of the grand scam plan or plot, the conspiracy to destroy the republic and to erect the new world order or resurrect the old world order, as the case may be, but they are a devious and diabolical group. Boy, they sure are a bunch of slime, that's for sure, and they're getting caught in a lot of this stuff. They're really, they're really, as my mother would say, they're, they're wiggling like a worm in hot ashes. Um, a lot of this stuff's coming out. There's one thing I wanted to talk about. Didn't get to talk about it yesterday. Friday we mentioned, remember we talked consciously about there was no December 7th stories anywhere? Yes, it was particularly devoid. Yeah, well, I did see a couple later in the afternoon, and one of them was uh, was my uh, intellectual friend in Atlanta, the one that hadn't had a TV in 25 years. He's a Catholic boy, uh, and he's really uh, adheres to the you know older, uh, more valid parts of that religion. But uh, he's a real uh, he sends out a lot of really interesting stuff, and this was one of his sins, and it was on a little-known ship that was maybe one of the most important ships in that whole battle called the Ward, the USS Ward, W-A-R-D. And it went into some history on not only the ship, but who it was named after. And the commander, Ward, was in the Navy in the Civil War. He was the first naval officer killed in the Civil War. And uh, uh, I forget which battle or skirmish up there on around Annapolis or something. Uh, regardless, they named a ship after him and that was commissioned at the turn of last century in a special type of little escort type ship for destroyers. And so then, uh, after world war one, they were all mothballed for a while. And then they brought them back out in world war two and made some modifications on it. And, uh, so that they would 
be able to carry more men and keep up with destroyers they took one of the boiler rooms out and one of the uh smokestacks to make room for extra troops and whatever so it was those ships and there was they were dispersed all over the world but a couple of them were stationed there at pearl harbor and and the ward was one of those ships that was stationed at pearl harbor and right before the attack i don't remember if it was a day or whatever it was out patrolling and there was another ship waiting to come into pearl harbor and they thought they saw a conning tower and they had been refitted with i don't remember if it's 30 millimeter or 50 millimeter guns but anyway they had a couple of them on deck and they started popping at what they saw as this conning tower that was behind another American vessel waiting to get entrance into Pearl Harbor. Obviously, they were going to slip in right there behind the other ship. And so it was so close that they couldn't get the sighting of the, uh, of the uh, gun. And they just kind of had to guesstimate. And they got to shoot twice at it. And they swore in the, in the reports that they thought they'd hit the conning tower. Okay, and so uh, that was the precursor to the attack on Pearl Harbor. And just recently, somebody diving found that submarine and it had a perfect hole right in the conning tower. (laughs) So the old the old Kentucky coon hunters could aim that 30 millimeter cannon and got that uh, Japanese submarine. But so it went through the war. And after the war, it was, uh, and it had the commander of it, the guy's name. And after the war, the ship uh, Ward got into another altercation and they, it got damaged and they had to sink it and scuttle it. And it was on December the 7th, one year later. And the guy that was the commander that had to give the order to scuttle the Ward was the guy that was the commander on the Ward that day it shot the submarine. He'd, he'd changed assignments, and he was over on another ship that actually ended up sinking that ship. It was a really fascinating story to me. That's some pretty fascinating shooting from some Tennessee Ridge Run boys. Uh, kind of reminds you of Alvin York. Sergeant yeah, right. York, the movie name. Right. And uh, that was rather an intriguing one where he used to be out there on the front lines and they had them embedded Germans in their pillboxes and stuff, and he'd make them turkey sounds, and they'd raise their head up to see what it was, and he'd blow their heads off and uh, wound up catching quite a number of them all by himself, single-handed, as I recall. I think that he had a number of them. Was it 20 or 30 or something? And he walked them down the hill carrying a machine gun, guarding them with one of their own machine guns, I think. I think you're something along those lines is what I remember, too. Of course, we only remember what we saw in the movie, but I think it was a fairly accurate representation. I th- I've, I've read some stuff. I used to read all that war stuff when I was a kid. Um, here's some more interesting truth coming out. Here's a little video, uh, since we're kind of playing videos and talking about this stuff and the truth coming out today. This one is pretty startling, Chris, and, and I guess Jim's still with us. Uh, this is a gal that used to work for Merck the pharmaceutical company that is actually up in front of a CDC open panel hearing or, or, or a hearing on something. Let's see here. Ex pharma executive gives explosive speech on vaccines before a CDC advisory committee. 
So I, I saw this last night, and I thought, boy, this is pretty interesting. Here's the amount of truth that's coming out. Let's see if I can get all these levels right here. Yep, got that up. Let's see here. I'll it's my get first this. time at the CDC, but I'm sure some of you know me very well. I used to work for Merck, and now I speak out against the dangers that the pharmaceutical companies don't tell you about pharmaceutical drugs and vaccines. So when I was trained at Merck, which was a very intense uh, training, we were told that all drugs go through a gold standard process, which is a double-blind, placebo-based, long-term studies. Well, for vaccines, as most of you know in here, they don't have to go through that process because they're categorized differently. So what's happening is we're seeing a lot of these vaccines being put onto the market and our children are test subjects. And right now we're seeing almost half of all children with a chronic illness. And if you look at the studies, the independent studies that are not funded by the pharmaceutical companies that are filled, that have filled this room, and you will see over a thousand studies, more than a thousand studies, showing the harm of the vaccines that are released onto the market without proper testing. So I ask that when you're considering the immunization schedules today, that you really take a step back because our children and adults, you know, in the US we've never been sicker. Our health is suffering. And I have done a lot of research on the difference between injection and ingestion. Now, this is something the pharmaceutical companies will never tell you. But anything injected goes straight into the circulation. It goes to vital organs. There's a study, a great study on aluminum, which shows that 95 plus percent is absorbed in the body tissues. When you eat something, when you drink something, when you inhale something, 95 percent of that is filtered out through our body's natural detox processes. So anything you inject is going to be far, far more dangerous and far more potent. So what's happening now is because the pharmaceutical industry, it's a saturated drug market and it's expensive. There's liability, which unfortunately there's no liability for vaccine makers with, pharma with vaccines. So you're seeing all of these new vaccines in develop, almost, development, almost 300. Because if they can call it a vaccine, they can A, inject the body with toxins and make them far more potent and create further health issues that sell the drugs that make them, you know, the most powerful industry in the world. And we're seeing them without liability. So they go through the committee here. And I sat this morning and I was disturbed. And I've watched this on the television, you know, on the live stream before. But I was really disturbed. Doctors asking about safety signals and when safety information is going to be available. And the answer is always like, Mm, five sentences that distract with no real answers. Well, enough people have to be hurt by the vaccine before we'll know if it's safe. Enough people have to die from the vaccine before we'll know it's safe. It's not acceptable because the American population pays really good tax dollars to make sure that this committee is not biased and to make sure that this committee is putting the people of America before the profits of the pharmaceutical industry. And I saw it firsthand when I sold Vioxx for Merck that these agencies, including the CDC and the FDA, are not doing their job anymore. And so I ask you today, when you consider these recommendations, consider all of the children and the adults and all the pregnant women that are gonna suffer because of your vote. 
because there may be a lot of money backing these recommendations from the pharmaceutical industry, but you are beholden to the American people. Please don't forget your mission. Thank you. How about that? How about that, Chris? Don't hear that kind of stuff too often, do you? Uh, not very often. That's actual truth coming out from somebody that used to be on the inside at Merck. And the Center for Disease Creation, uh, the AMA by Flexner and Rockefeller, to put the the naturopaths and homeopaths and chiropractors out of business so they could perpetually treat uh, themselves at the expense of the American people by opening their wallets for continual so-called uh, injections for infection that they term vaccines, which cure, neither cure nor prevent anything except for more misery, harm, and in fact, I think that Betty DiMartini, uh, she has something to do oh, with yeah. the... I uh, met her. Oh, yeah, a great lady, a very... Uh, she's an aspartame anti-campaigner. Uh, that's something that we ingest. Uh, in fact, she mentioned that whenever you inhale, ingest, which means eat or drink, or inject these substances in your body, that it significantly enhances molecular infusion. Oh, that wasn't her words. That's my words, molecular infusion. But I think that's what she was implying, uh, perhaps dumbing down her speak to a group that she was speaking to. However, that's what happens. The trimethyl aluminums, the adjuvants, the thimerosal, mercury, and other very dangerous substances, including human um, fe uh, fetus parts and renditions thereof, and even flavorings in PepsiCo, they say, that they don't tell them what the flavorings are for. Uh, these things are diabolical. This is truly demonic activity. They're using, Hashitan, the, they're using like, stem cell stuff in Pepsis for flavor. <laughs> yeah, I want to drink some of that. I want to rush down. I, I can't imagine. You know, I'm con <laughs> I, I, I'm shocked at people that still drink uh, Coke and, and all that stuff. I mean, I really am uh, knowing what we are, but I see it all the time, and I'm just kind of always, oh, okay. Uh, the, this, the, this kind of this health stuff's really your ballywick, Jimbo. But I remember hearing a statistic years ago when I was studying this stuff more. And if you took a eight down here in South America, they still get those eight ounce Coke bottles with real sugar in them, you know, and if you were to drink one of those, it, it takes 32 bottles of the same size of water just to balance out the acidity in one eight ounce bottle of Coke, 32 bottles of water just to balance it out. Yep. Yeah, the uh, phosphoric acid in those drinks eats your teeth. They leach calcium out of your bones and make them brittle. It's just unbelievable, the stuff that that, that stuff does. It's just and poison, it's man. Poison I mean, it, it is just legalized poison. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's in toilet cleaner. Look at the label <laughs> bottle and, the, and a and bottle You'll see phosphoric acid in both of them. That's the stuff that cleans the rust off the sides of your toilet. <laughs> yep. I remember hearing that every a lot of uh, police cars have coke in the back in the trunk for when they come across those cars on the side of the road. It's on a huge percentage of time. It's the battery terminals that have uh, uh, got all uh, screwed up there, and they just pour the coke over the battery terminals. It uh, dispels the acid, and maybe the car will yep. start. Oh, yeah. 
it cleans the terminals up and gets all the junk off. <laughs> Uh, it's crazy. Yuck, yuck, yuck. <clears throat> Unbelievable. So uh, anything new over in the health world that you're really excited about, uh, Jim? Uh, good question. You know, I was actually thinking about playing that uh, recording you just played on my show. <laughs> oh, the, oh the vaccines? That was a good Made me uh, made me think of a friend of mine, uh, Gwen Olson. I don't know if you ever bumped into her. She's in Costa Rica now, but she used to work for the drug companies too. And she wrote a book called Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher. And her big thing was the psychotropic drugs that they put kids on, the Adderall and the you know, um, uh, shoot, I can't think of the uh, the main one. Rid- uh, 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 but anyway, starts with an R. Ritalin. Ritalin, Ritalin, yeah. Uh, her, I think she had a family member, I think it was a niece or something like that, who committed suicide after being on those things. And um, she just went crazy and is now, you know, writing and doing all kinds of public speaking and everything else to try and uh, do the same thing that this person that you just had the interview on. Uh, same kind of thing, just trying to expose the, the criminal nature of Big Pharma and the... Uh, all the companies out there that are making money off of killing people. Well, I yeah, shot it's... you that link down there in Skype, so you got it at your fingertips. Also, a while back, I think I shot you for people that may want to, that still do read, uh, I shot Jim a copy of Eustace Mullins' Murder by Injection on ebook. You were going to post yeah, it on your website. It. Did you get it up there? Yeah, I've, uh, I put it on my, I think I've got it on my website and I had a couple of listeners that asked for it cause I mentioned it when, uh, when you got it to me and, uh, interesting book. Well, that's a startling yeah. book. Everybody should read that really. Uh, Chris. Yeah. Curiously, Jim and Roger, uh, I just happened to view a copy of that book, uh, yesterday. I've read it myself cover to cover and it has a, a really beautiful light metallic purple yes it does uh, cover on it yes very inviting to, to men and women both and the the topic in there is very uh, curious it talks about adam flexner i think was his name yep uh, who was the precipitator of the ama the american murder association that they call the medical association and jim i have first party experience from the backside uh, the effects of those suicidal psychotropic drugs that are usually methamphetamine sulfate based, that's speed for the common speak of people out there. Uh, and these things, uh, they uh, supposedly mood enhancers and elevators, they cause sleeplessness, homicide, suicidal ideations, uh, self um, emulation, all kinds of dangerous stuff and death in some cases. Uh, this is very, very diabolical, and I've seen the zombie walk firsthand when they had me unlawfully locked up there in Lakes Crossing Center for 30 days, proving my so-called competency, which is a doctrine of void vague word term, because it has no specific meaning whatsoever. It's uh, malleable and adjustable and can continually be changed. Psychobabble. It's psychobabble, Chris. Yes, yep. absolutely. Psychobabble words. You're exactly right. Uh, but seeing these people that, you know, many of them may have actually needed help. I don't dispute that. But there were a lot of people in there that were political prisoners like myself, being psycho-political warfare by Kenneth Goff, uh, using so-called psychiatry, psychiatry and so-called mental health or healing uh, to per se execute your political enemies by putting them out of commission and perhaps uh, chemically, electrically, or, ke- or otherwise lobotomizing them 
or murdering them, as the case may be, to shut them up and get vexatious litigators and other people who are putting too much sunshine of light on the truth of the criminality of the medical mafia and the government mafia. Uh, and that way you can shut them up forever and put them out much like the man in the mask. I think it was the movie about locking up one of the brothers of one of the kings in Bastille or some other high tower. Well, it, it amazes me that uh, uh, I saw a list of the adjutants. They, I think that's what they call them, Jim. Adjutants that gets, gets them around some legal stuff. They can just lump a bunch of stuff under that. But some of the things they're putting in vaccines these days, well, the, um, the one that blows me away is what the hell are they doing putting peanut stuff in there that's causing all these people to have peanut reactions? That's been going on. For, pardon me? They use peanut oil in many of them, and that's why there are so many people with peanut allergies now. They're hyper hypersensitive to it, and it's nuts. And I, I, I'm sure that it's a planned, you know, it's all part of the, you know, eliminate as much of the population as we can and get them all on, uh, you know, drugs from cradle to grave. That's the whole, whole part of the program. And the autism and the, the, the lowering of IQs and the general uh autistic attitude so that they can control easier and pull off this stuff uh easier um oh, yeah. it's just diabolical as hell and i'm glad to see more and more people waking up to it on these drugs that they're giving you chris you were talking about them being a, a lot of them speed based well a lot of these ssri drugs are all fluoride based they got right at the base of the formulas are all fluoride uh, there's a whole class of these. I don't remember they call them fluorine drugs or whatever, but uh, a lot of those SSRIs and all those kind of class of drugs are all fluoride-based, which is, you know, well, there you go right from the start, fluoride. Yep. Makes you docile, lowers your IQ. There's all kinds of bad things. And, and it probably does things we don't even know that it does at this point, but they're certainly not positive. Just check sure. out just have to read Dr. Mengele's uh, research in World War II and the, the camps because they used it heavily there. Yep. Yep. Make the prisoners docile. Uh, a lot of, yeah. A lot of people don't know that fluorosilic acid fluoride, as we know it, uh, comes from the smokestacks of aluminum melting operation. Yep. Yeah. And they used, used to have to pay to dispose of this toxic waste. And, of course, Rumsfeld came up with the ideology the insane idea to sell it to the dental community supposedly as a uh, cavity prevention and it doesn't do any such thing but it made a market for selling off toxic waste as something to supposedly prevent something which prevents nothing and therefore generates lots of revenue for what they used to have to pay to get rid of so it's a very devious scheme that they've perpetrated on the American public. It sure is, but I, I think it was done with the uh, with Freud's grandson uh, even before Rumsfeld did it. I think they did that whole thing back in the 40s with fluoride. Uh, here's a... Here. Let me let me jump in real quick. You mentioned how they're they're taking this industrial waste and making it a so-called health product. Now uh, there's a new thing called biosludge. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, the stuff comes from you know the sewage treatment plants all over the country, and I've got on my uh, my homepage at the very top of the page 
is a video. It's a documentary about an hour and nine minutes long called Biosludge. Uh, Mike Adams and some other folks put it together, and it's awesome. So everybody, uh, go to yourdiyhealth.com, Y-O-U-R-D-I-Y-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. You can watch the video free right there, and you can also download the files, burn them to DVDs, the whole thing. They want it to get out there, so they're letting it uh, be. They just ask that you give them credit and don't edit it in any way. But um, it's a great video. I encourage everybody to watch it to see the next level of what's going on. It's, I mean, it's fluoride 2.0, really. It's just bad news. It's pretty it's, scary. I'm glad you brought it up, uh, Jim. Go ahead, Chris. I'll come back in a second. Go ahead. Speaking of biosludge, I watched a video. It's been a few months ago. I think it was New Zealand, as I recall. And they were spraying human waste, which is biosludge, uh, from airplanes supposedly to fertilize to grow the crops. Of course, never mind the fact that the... Uh, devious things in human waste, uh, whether they're psychotropic drugs or uh, communicable diseases or whatever else are incorporated in the biosludge, and now it's being infused through the plant systems, taking them up and then converting it into the processes and the foods that you later eat and the animals eat, and then we all get it uh, and become exposed to these devious and diabolical chemicals that are infused within the plant matrixes. Uh, and the guys that's going to help us when it's really going to destroy us it is a devious plan to obliterate significant populations across the planet in the um, Georgia Guidestones predicted reduction of, I think, 66 to 75 percent of the human population on the earth and the rewilding projects or the New West projects, as the case may be. Well, I, I, as I said, I'm glad Jim brought that up. I watched it when that first weekend was out. It's only a couple of weeks old, isn't it, Jim? Hadn't been around very long. And, out on the 30th of November. And so what, as bad as everything that Chris just went over about the, the human aspect of this, what has really happened that most people, and I wasn't aware of it, is they had a regulatory change, and they went to industry, and they said, you can dump all of your waste in the sewage treatment. So not only are you getting all the human stuff that you went over and all the drugs that are going through people and uh, uh, that you're excreting out that end up over there, but then you've got all of these deadly chemicals that industry is now able to pour in right at the, I forget the juncture of where it is in the process, but they get to dump whatever they want right into the sewage stuff. And that is where you're really going to see uh, the backlash on it down the road because it's all these toxic chemicals, more so than just biological processes. Yeah, and it's being spread on all farmlands, parklands, just about any place they can think of. And it's, it's, they're just, you know, you've got production of this stuff all over the country. Any place there's a municipal water system, you've got piles of this junk. And anybody that has any business that has any wasting, just go dump it in the sewer. And then that stuff will all be part of it, and it'll end up on your uh, farmland and in the parks and everything else. And there's no telling what kind of crap you're going to get. But, now, uh, it's bad news. They concentrated on, I remember Austin, and what was it, Minneapolis or somewhere up in Wisconsin? There was another yeah, some, one. But uh, they're hitting, I mean, they're literally hitting all over the place now. Right, but in the in blogosphere or a, a bio, bio sludge, whatever the title of it is, 
they went and got the outtake that they're commercially selling at like uh, Home Depots and stuff where you go buy those big 50-pound bags of this stuff, and it says biodegradable and all this stuff on the front, and on the back it says it causes cancer. Yeah. Yeah, they're actually bagging this stuff up and selling it. Just one more way of making money. And, and, and yeah. when you put it on your yard, they say don't wash it into the gutters. Make sure it all gets washed on your yard. <laughs> Crazy. It's nuts, man. Huge, huge potential problem down the road. And the thing that got me out of the uh, video was the remedies for it are doable, okay? In other words, you take the uh, the refuge and you put a trap on top of it, and that traps the methane gas, and then you use the methane gas to throw it, run it through a burner uh, protocol that gets rid of all the bad stuff. Okay, it doesn't just throw it up in the air. It get, gets rid of it and burns it up. and uh, But that just makes too much sense, you know? Yeah. Here in Columbus, we used to have a burning power plant, and they shut it down because they said it was too expensive. And I hate to think, I'm, I'm assuming that now they're doing the same thing that, you know, this movie talked about. It's crazy. Well, it's pretty interesting, uh Pretty interesting uh, video, and I'm really glad you brought it up because I meant to talk about it, and there's a, little, a lot of things like that. I don't know about a lot of, but certainly occasionally ones like that that I just don't get around to because they're not particularly my ballywick, and they just slip through the cracks. So I'm glad you brought that up. Here's something about our uh, – we were talking earlier about France. Here's an article that I had saved. The nationalists are burning federal buildings and degenerate art museums. <laughs> so see there's a there's a backlash as to the underlying underlying reasons of this it ain't about taxes on uh diesel fuel necessarily crazy crazy days <laughs> yep so uh let's see here here's an interesting story that i had saved i can get rid of some of these tabs today remember the ninth circuit we came up with that uh, that rumble here a while back that the Ninth Circuit, Trump's getting ready to dissolve it. And he's got a committee in place that's got the power to recommend those sorts of things, and it's being staffed right now. Uh, but as this migrant thing started here a couple of weeks ago, remember the Ninth Circuit judge that struck down the travel ban? Or the, I guess it's the guy that struck down the travel ban originally when Trump was uh, first elected. They've a lot of the Ninth Circuit's given him a lot of problem. His name was uh, Judge Alex Korzinski. Well, he's been found out there in all kinds of sexual improprieties uh, inside the Ninth Circuit with all kinds of AIDS and stuff like that. So there's another Ninth Circuit judge, Mr. Ko, Mr. Kozinski, Alex Kozinski, that has bitten the dust. Maybe the entire Ninth Circuit. Bomber. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he's related to the shoe bomber, right? Do what, Chris? Aside. See, it, it, it's, I just cannot get Chris to load Skype. Sorry, that was Kaczynski, and he was originally from either Russia or Poland. And he particularly was very astute in his constitutional knowledge because he had lived under the boot of communism in those areas and knew it very, very well 
the stories of what happened to those who are foolish enough to embrace this devious Zionist communist concept. Well, they're sure shoving it down our throats. They're in high gear to try and get their agenda uh, further as long as further along as they can here at the last. And uh, Trump's already upset in the apple cart with them. And we'll just sit back and watch it all happen, I guess, guys. Guys, I'm going to have to jump off here. I got to get some stuff done before I uh, have my show in 45 minutes. So uh, okay. it's great being on again. And sorry, it's been so long. <laughs> well, Jim, it's always good Thanks, to hear man. from you and get your input, man. And I'm, I feel real guilty that I don't promote your show enough that you follow here on a regular basis. And we sure appreciate you, brother. No problem. I'll tell you what, I always, uh, when mine starts up, I always talk about what you guys were talking about. <laughs> well, and you know, sometimes it's, uh, I've just, instead of being a show show, always try and get things that are topical and important, obviously, but sometimes like today, uh, it's just, you just kind of cover the ground and use the platform as a sanity platform so we can talk about these things and we're not all crazy. There you go. <laughs> all right, Jimbo. Well, thanks a lot, man. We sure appreciate you over there. Here, I'll be listening. All right. Let's see here. What else can I do? If there's nothing else to talk about. I might plug in this uh, David Duke tape on the history of Jewish slavery. That I don't know that you can run that too much. We haven't played it in a while. Maybe that'd give me a little bit of break today. I get a real treat today, Chris. Well, I think you deserve one, Roger. Well, I, I, you're well, I know. up well. And I know damn well I deserve one. Okay. I mean, with what, with what I've been through the last few months, I promise you I deserve one. But I'm going to get one, uh, whether I'm deserving or not today, because I get to meet a real good friend of Brent's and have lunch with him. And so since I've never even, you know, been able to shake hands with Brent or look him in the eye, this is, I guess, second best thing. So uh, it's a friend of his somehow that is uh, married to an Ecuadorian gal. And has a house down here just up the hill from where I live. And so he's going to come have lunch with us today with the Tuesday expat get-together when we have our little lunches. And uh, sure looking forward to meeting him. I think you should. And any friend of Brent's is a friend of ours. <laughs> I'd like to think so. I think we've brought Brent around finally. You know, it certainly took a long time. and uh, uh, But... Uh, I, I believe if there's anything that really has uh, drug him across the line, I've been working on that boy for a long time, you know, at least four years, all right? And I think that it... Well, let me just finish I was say, it. When the undeniable smacks you in the face, it's pretty hard to ignore it whenever it's starting to eat into your pocket and affect people around you and you're seeing the evidence of it everywhere you turn and you can't hardly refute the unrefutable. Well, it, it, it uh, I think what maybe drug him over the line on all honesty was the uh, show with Brian's information. Absolutely. I mean, those things are... Very few people ever get into the inner belly, the underside, the basement floors of the beast system. And to find out that there is a special, advantageous, adversarial computer system that is a one-way, they enter information in from those, I mean, I guess it maybe goes two ways, 
But to have a vault where they keep these securitized, monetized birth cert instruments for human trafficking on the world. Up at the same. Well, now hold on, Chris. Did we lose you? Well, see. Clearly, as Brian observed. Well, we lost a, about uh, 10, 10, 12 seconds of what you said there. Um, but um, we're coming into some real interesting times. Next year is going to be very interesting. See how, uh, how the deep state continues to try and subvert him. This arrest of the Hawaii CFO up in Canada, derailing the Chinese uh, talks on trade and uh, trying to straighten out some of the balance of payments and to stop. Basically, what he's trying to do is stop the bleeding, okay? And uh, because they're bleeding out balance of payment deficits every month, uh, plenty of them. You know, kind of odd, Roger. You know, they talk about the way uh, selling so-called proprietary stuff to our enemies, and I think this was somewhere in the Middle East they were selling it. Uh, and t this was the Chinese people when they arrested the CFO or CEO of this company, a female, uh, I think espionage is the allegation. However, when we look back and clearly observe with documentary testimony evidence that America and their ideological policies driven by the Zionists to control this country gifted Israel with a whole mess of high-tech top technology plane, jet airplanes and weapon systems that uh, we just gave to them. Uh, and then after that, they decided to sell them to somebody over there, one of our enemies, Saudi Arabia or whoever else, uh, and made a great big profit for themselves because if you get your money for nothing and your chicks for free, it's a pretty diabolical aspect, especially when the American people are writing the checks to pay for it. Well, not only what we quote unquote gave them, but what they quote unquote stole. Uh, they built. Uh, they're one of the huge weapons providers in the world now. That's a huge industry, obviously. Um, maybe we'll. Uh, maybe we'll instead of playing the David Duke thing. I think what I'm going to play is this Allison Weir uh, talk that she gave. We've played it a couple of times. Incredible information in here uh, that I'd never heard before. Okay. And Allison uh, plugs her website, and she's got a blog over there. I should try and reach out to her. She may be somebody that would be open to our information. Uh, but let me lead up to tomorrow, and we've got Paul on tomorrow, and Paul's been uh, in-depth in a research project since last week on the London Fire. And when we spoke yesterday, he said, I've still got some more uh, stuff I got to do on this, but I've already come across some very startling parallels and facts. So uh, I think we're going to get that tomorrow. So how about that? That'll give you something to look forward to, Chris. Already looking forward to it. Yep. So um, all right. Well, listen, I'm going to I'm going to tap in. I think Allison probably carries right up to pretty much the end of the show here. Let's see if I give her another second or two. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with Paul and uh, just kind of watch what the markets are going to do this afternoon. That might be something to keep your finger on the pulse of as we go through the afternoon, see if they lose their support they've built up. And otherwise than that, I guess I'll just play, what, Chris, real quick, what? You say it's going to be another birth cert Wednesday with Paul and others? Well, I don't know about I think there's some tie-ins to our birth certificate uh, project. 
uh, with this uh, London Fire information that he's going to bring us. So that's my uh-huh. sense, okay, that there's a tie-in there. Oh. So let me start, Allison, here, and I'll just uh, tap out the day and give me a few more minutes to get ready for uh, our lunch. And so I'm not suppressed, and we'll see you tomorrow with Paul. How about that, Chris? One parting metaphorical shot, if you don't mind. The fires in London and the fires in California are not unrelated. The Feast of Purim by the fires of Moloch and Baal are one of the favorite weapons of these deviant psychopaths. Well, they do call it, they, they don't call it Jewish lightning for nothing. Here we go, Allison. Let's see here. When see you all tomorrow. I into this and wake up to this late in my life. I wondered much more. How did this all begin? What's going on? How, what's, what's Israel-Palestine about? Who really did initiate the violence? You know, we've seen from January 1st, we've seen going back to um, the January, uh, going back to 2000, 2001. Where, where and how did this all start? And how did the U.S. get such a uniquely special relationship with a tiny country without resources? How did this happen? Well, one of the first things I learned was that when, when I was born, there was no Israel. So, where did this come from? Well, what I discovered was that there was a movement uh, that began over a century ago and began operating in Europe and in the United States. It was, a, was and is a political movement that has profoundly and negatively impacted our country. It has tragically impacted the Middle East and it has dangerously impacted the entire world. And yet most of us, I think, have never heard of it and could certainly not define it. It's political Zionism. This was a movement to create a Jewish state in Palestine. It began in the late 1800s. Well, let us look at Palestine in the late 1800s. It was what we largely think of now as a somewhat multicultural land in that was about 80% Muslim, about 15% Christian, and about 5% Jewish, all living together quite successfully. There are mosques, synagogues, uh, churches throughout Palestine, throughout the Middle East, and throughout North Africa. These populations had been living without conflict for centuries. But this movement was, was created largely in Israel, uh, largely in Europe, and then taken up at the same time in the US, to create a Jewish state on land that was already inhabited, in which 95% were not Jewish. Therefore, this would involve, and this was known by the leadership, even though many followers didn't know it, this would mean that 95% of those people were going to be dispossessed by money, if possible, by force, if necessary. This was written in, in Zionist journals early on. Now, my book and my talk concentrates on the U.S. aspect of all of this. What surprised me in my research is how early and how active this movement was in the United States. A movement I'd never heard of, although I was born here, and my parents were born here, and some ancestors go back to the beginning. It turns out that this was a very significant movement long before my parents were born. 
And then by 1910, there were already 20,000 Zionists in the US. They included lawyers, professors, and businessmen. It was already in 1910 a movement to which congressmen listened. Then in 1912, we had a very significant development. A prominent lawyer named Louis Brandeis became a Zionist. Brandeis not only just be, didn't just become a Zionist, within about two years, he then became the head of world Zionism. This was, a pub, this was public, it's not some secret knowledge, it's just that most of us don't know it. And then within a few years, he was also a Supreme Court Justice, named by Woodrow Wilson. When you're a Supreme Court Justice, you're supposed to resign your various board memberships and affiliations because you're supposed to not have any conflict of interest but be neutral. So he did resign his leadership of world Zionism, but in reality, he continued it. He would receive reports in his Supreme Court chambers by his loyal lieutenants, and then he would give them directives to go out and to uh, follow in work for Zionism. And this is mentioned in a number of very reliable books. If you get my book, you'll see that my book is over half footnotes. It's all cited. By the way, one of his loyal lieutenants also went on to become a very prominent Supreme Court Justice, Felix Frankfurter. So I'd read that. That to me was shocking right there. But then I discovered something more. So I'll give you my citations for this next information so you can evaluate whether you find it reliable or not. I, the way I did my research is I, I would read books, then I would look at their footnotes to see where they had gotten that information. Then I would often get those books and read those footnotes and then order those books and read those footnotes and on and on. So one of the books that I read was re really a fairly well-known one. Israel in the Mind of America, published by a very mainstream establishment publisher, and the author was a very mainstream author. He had been diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times, he had been at Harvard, he'd written a number of well-regarded, very establishment nonfiction books. Well, in this book, he had a few pages in which he told about a secret Zionist society that had operated in the United States of which Louis Brandeis, while a Supreme Court Justice, had been a leader. So I looked at where he got that information and I went to that source. It turned out to be from a scholarly journal called the American Jewish Historical Quarterly, a very respected journal. So then I looked at the author well, is this a reliable author who wrote this very, to me, explosive information and turned out to be a, a well-regarded Israeli historian at a, a mainstream uh, Israeli university. She had written an article in 1975 called The Parashim, a secret episode in American Zionist history. Uh, and she told about what this was, an elitist secret society the word meant Pharisees and separate. They would go around the country and influence people to push the Zionist agenda. By the way, at this time, the Jewish population were not Zionists at all. The large majority were not Zionists. Many were opposed to Zionism. This was a, a very, very fringe uh, element to a certain regard. 
Then in this secret society, they even had a secret induction ceremony. So that when somebody joined this society, and many, their membership included professors and Harvard, you know, recent Harvard graduates and uh, doctors, significant people around the country were sometimes members. And in the initiation ceremony, they were told by the inductor, and they swore to this, until our purpose shall be accomplished, you will be the fellow of a brotherhood whose bond you will regard as greater than any other in your life, dearer than that of family, of school, of nation. As early as November 1915, a leader of the Parashim went around suggesting that the British might gain some benefit from a formal declaration in support of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. Those of you who have heard of the Balfour Declaration that came in 1917 might find this relevant. I'll get into that a little bit more. Let's remember what was going on during this time period now in the world, especially that involved Britain. Well, of course, in 1914 began what was called at that time the Great War of massive carnage. British forces in the first day of the Battle of the Somme lost, according to historians, somewhere around 50,000 to 60,000 men in one day of a battle that went on and on and on. The British and the German, both sides of course, wanted the U.S. to come in on their side to join this carnage. But the American population were that bad thing, they were isolationists. They didn't want to go kill and be killed in a foreign pointless war. In fact, Woodrow Wilson was elected with the slogan, he kept us out of the war. But of course, as you know, with hindsight, no, he didn't. Well, what happened is that the, the Zionists leaders, some of them, in Britain, a man named Chaim Weizmann, who is quite well known, went to the British government and said, well, we can help you win this war. Now, why would they want to do that? Because the war wasn't just against Germany, it was against the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire uh, held Palestine. Palestine was under, under the Ottoman Empire. So by defeating them, the British would, would come into control of, of Palestine. So the Zionists went to the British and said, we can help you get the United States into the war. Our, our Zionist colleagues in the United States for example, they said in writing, Louis Brandeis, who is close to President Wilson, can help to do that. In exchange for that, the British did issue a declaration that was quite significant, mild as it may sound. It was really considered a gentleman's agreement. This is written about in a number of books, just most of us don't know this about our own history. So the Balfour Declaration was basically a promise that the British would help to facilitate the Zionist objective of creating a Jewish state in Palestine. After the British, of course, did win, then at the Paris Peace Talks, the Zionists pushed, to, uh, pushed this wording into the mandate in which Britain took charge of... <laughs> then jumping ahead to some of the American aspects again, then we find during the 30s and the 40s, in Palestine itself, 
there were some, the violence increased. Naturally, as soon, you know, when there was colonization beginning around the turn of the century to a land with the intention of pushing out the land, the indigenous population at some point is going to wake out, wake up, and there will be violence. That has happened in the early 20s and again in 1929. There was violence between the two populations. Then, uh, then as now, the large number of those killed were the Palestinians. So as the violence increased, there were some terrorist organizations created in Palestine by the Zionists. One of them led by a former, in fact, two of them led by future Israeli prime ministers. And uh, those, those terrorist organizations in Palestine, the Irgun and the Stern Gang, it turns out had front groups in the United States with duplicitous names. And they were funneling massive amounts of money and weaponry to these terror groups in Palestine. They put on major pageants where Supreme Court justices attended and thousands of people attended. They were very prominent. One of them was led by a, a man named Peter Bergson, people thought. His real name was Hillel Cook. He was the operative for the Irgun. I looked into one of the leaders a bit more, just, just because I needed to find out his first name. When you're writing a book, you can't just write someone's last name, you need to know their first name. And I had heard about another leader of, of one of these types of front groups connected to killing in Palestine. And uh, his name was Rabbi Korf, but I didn't know the first name. None of the books that I had had a few paragraphs of them, but none of them gave his first name. So I looked into it on the internet, tried to do various searches, and eventually I came up with a UN report that gave his, his first name, Baruch Korf, and told a little bit about a plot he was part of. Using those search terms, I then could just, you know, put in more information into my search bar, and suddenly all these PDFs of American newspapers popped up, all of these returns. It turned out that Rabbi Baruch Korf was part of a, a, a cell in Paris that was planning to fly an airplane and bomb Britain after the war. Britain that had just defeated Hitler. But they were so angry at the British because the British were not allowing a, a large enough Jewish immigration into Palestine. So they were going to kill the British. So Baruch Korf and his section of the Stern Gang had this plan, but there was one problem. They, they didn't know how to fly an airplane. They weren't pilots. So they needed to find somebody, and they recruited a young American aviator named Reginald Gilbert, I discovered. Reginald Gilbert had been an ace during the war. He was in Paris, and they recruited him to fly the airplane for them. He pretended to go along with the plot, but then he went to the American Embassy. And the American Embassy ins informed the Paris police and Scotland Yard. So for a week, he pretended to go along with this cell. And then when it came time to actually take off, to fly the plane, to drop these uh, incendiary bombs onto the foreign ministry, they were caught. By the way, the original plan had been to bomb Parliament but then they decided they hated the foreign ministry more. And Gilbert at one point had said to them, well, what if I can't find the foreign ministry in, in the London fog? 
they didn't have this you know, degree of instrumentation we have today, and that was a real possibility. And they said then just drop them anywhere, kill anybody, all, of, all British are our enemy. So they were caught. Korf was in prison for a few months in Paris, and he eventually got off. He had very powerful friends in the United States. But I was curious about him. I looked into him some more. To, you know, this was so astounding to me. And none of these, you know, dozens and dozens of books I have, none of them had any, had this story in there at all. And so, in looking at him, I discovered that later in life he was a friend of Richard Nixon. In fact. It was reported that he had helped to influence Nixon's policies on the Middle East. In fact, Nixon sort of in a fond way called him my rabbi. Now the precursor to today's very powerful Israel lobby was a group called the American Zionist Emergency Council, AZEC. Uh, this was formed in around 1940, and by 1943 had a budget of half a million dollars at a time when a nickel bought a loaf of bread. Within a few years, they had maneuvered their way into access to an even far larger sum in which they had access to $14 million in 1941 and $150 million by 1948. That's the equivalent in today's dollars of a trillion dollars to use to manipulate the United States. So they targeted, with that money, every sector of US society. Uh, and you know, this isn't ancient history. They had annual reports. They had directives. You know, all of this was written down on paper. They targeted congressmen, Christian clergy, editors, professors, business and labor, Jewish war veterans. They published. Uh, books all over. They had 400 local committees. There were massive campaigns throughout the country. They also worked especially to manufacture Christian support. They s uh, secretly funded sort of Christian groups that would push the same Zionist ideology. They uh, funded books that became huge bestsellers. It was a, an em enormously successful campaign throughout the country. Even though during this time there was a great deal of opposition to Zionism by many different groups, by Christian leaders, by State Department, Pentagon, intelligence agencies, Jewish anti-Zionists, many people were opposed to it. Two of the most celebrated Christian pastors opposed it on religious and moral grounds. Uh, the Christian leaders in the Middle East had gone to the Paris Peace Talks to advocate on behalf of the Arab population that there should be self-determination of peoples there. Uh, one very prominent American Christian who was a Dead Sea scholar wrote a wonderful book called Palestine is Our Issue, is Our Business. Uh, and, you know, to read that book, you, it's very strong. He talks about the right of return, about Palestinian resistance fighters, etc. But it was buried. Diplomats, the State Department, the military, the Pentagon, the intelligence agencies wrote directive after directive, study after study, memo after memo, talking about how damaging to the U.S. and to U.S. strategic interests and how in violation of American principles Zionism would be. Starting from under Taft, there was then a commission to, the, to Palestine during the time of the Paris peace talks. They went there to investigate the situation, to 
you know, look into the possibility of creating a Jewish state there. And they came back with a very powerful report saying this would be a grave trespass on the rights of the people there. This was entirely buried and uh, had no effect whatsoever. Dean Acheson, a major statesman for many years, wrote that the Zionist agenda would imperil not only American but all Western interests in the Near East. The CIA wrote that they were pursuing objectives that would endanger the strategic interests of the Western powers in the Near and Middle East. There, there's so much evidence of, of this. You know, some people debate about whether the lobby is powerful. It's been powerful since the beginning. And the evidence is all there. It's just buried. Alfred Lilienthal was part of the American Council for Judaism. I had the honor of meeting him. He wrote excellent books about this. That group was, was arguing against Zionism. And part of what they were arguing in the State Department was that there would be massive bloodshed and chaos if this was pushed through. When the Zionists began to work to push through what's called the partition plan through the United Nations, that's portrayed to Americans as this wonderful compromise. Palestinians just, you know, ignored this wonderful opportunity that Palestinians pushed through. Well, they, they knew, and the State Department were saying this would be a, a disaster if this gets pushed through. The idea was that, the, that Palestine, half of it would be given to a Jewish state. Even though these were mo mostly recently arrived and had originally only been 5% of, of, of the population. And even after decades of immigration, were 30% of the population. And this plan wasn't actually half. The plan was that they would get 55% of Palestine, approximately, and the Palestinians would get about 45% of their own land. Now, I know what the Americans would say if the UN did that to us. But this is portrayed with, oh, those foolish Palestinians not accepting that. Um, and by the way, the, many people are under the illusion that Israel bought up all that land. That's what's been told, and that was the attempt. And they did increase Jewish ownership about over, you know, from what was originally about 1% because it was so an urban population to at most 8%. Most historians said they owned about 5 to 6%. So a group that owned 8% under this plan was getting 55%, a good deal for them. No wonder they said they would go along with it and secretly in their journal said it's the first step, then we will get it all. But rather than bringing peace, which was what the UN was charged with, instead of bringing peace, it did the opposite. It created, of course, still more violence and there was a war that Israel calls its War of Independence, and Palestinians call it Al-Nakba, the catastrophe, because it was a massive humanitarian catastrophe. At least three-quarters of a million men, women, and children were very ruthlessly and violently pushed off their land. There were at least 16 massacres before a single Arab army finally joined the fray. And by the way, those of you that grew up with the myth that I did, that little Israel declared its independence and suddenly, you know, five to seven Arab armies suddenly just attacked, but Israel somehow won because God, you know, was on their side or something. Well, in reality, before Israel declared its independence on about May 14th, 15th, it's a midnight type of situation, they had already committed 16 massacres 
These are quite grisly, you can read the details of them. They had already ethnically cleansed at least 200,000 people. When these Arab armies did come into the fray, they were smaller in number, including the Palestinian forces, than, than the Zionist forces were. And by the way, all, all, virtually all of the battles were actually fought on the part that, according to the UN plan, was going to be Palestinian territory. Now, some people, again, were trying to tell Americans what was going on. One of the most important was a woman named Dorothy Thompson. She was what Britannica Encyclopedia says was one of the most famous journalists of the 20th century. In fact, I believe at one place they say that she is the most important female journalist of the 20th century. It's true, although I had never heard of her. She had a newspaper column that was printed all over the United States, a radio program that was listened to by millions of Americans. She was such a celebrity that there was a Broadway play in which she was, loose, she was played by Lauren Bacall, and there was a Hollywood movie loosely based on her life in which she was played by Katherine Hepburn. She was considered the most powerful woman in the United States after Eleanor Roosevelt. She was an excellent journalist. She had been a foreign correspondent in Germany during the 30s and had been one of the first journalists to raise the alarm about Hitler. She was the first foreign journalist to be expelled by Hitler. She was therefore very sympathetic to Zionism. But after the war, when Israel, when, you know, later when Israel began to be created, she went over to see this wonderful state of Israel, the new Jewish state. And when she got there, she saw hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees living in squalor, dying in large numbers every day. And she began to write of them, to tell about them, to speak about them. She even eventually made a documentary about them. And for telling about these people, for writing about these people, she lost her newspaper column, she lost her radio program, she lost her fame, and she was erased from history. On sort of a similar final note, if I now tried to write an article, maybe about Dorothy Thompson, a fascinating person, or maybe about the Parashim, or maybe about Reginald Gilbert, there's much more I could tell you about, very interesting about him. If I tried to do that for a popular American history magazine, which I would like to do, I quite likely would not get it published. And that's, you know, this is not paranoid speculation. A few years ago, we tried to put a paid newspaper ad in American History Magazine, not about Palestine. We tried to put a paid ad in about a book, a memoir by a 91-year-old American congressman. It tells about his, his uh, childhood and Depression-era America, in Corn Belt America, about being a small-town newspaper editor, about serving the Seabees during World War II, about going to Congress, about all his various fights in Congress, and about also, near the end of the book, it tells about the fact that when he started to speak about Palestine, he was targeted by the Israel lobby, money was funded to his opponent, and after 22 years in Congress, he lost the election, Paul Finley. But our advertisement didn't even tell about that last part of his very long life, it just told about his book, you know, with the usual blurbs about what a wonderful book this is. But Eric Weider, the publisher and owner of American History Magazine, informed us that they would not publish our advertisement in American History Magazine. 
because we were anti-Israel, and that they would not publish our advertisement in any of the popular history magazines that they own in the United States, which is virtually every one. This is, according to their website, the largest history chain in the world, and it's certainly the largest one in the United States. So what do we do about this? To me, we tell people what's going on. We even talk to those people that we don't want to raise something serious or uncomfortable with, because right now, as we're talking, we all know what's going on in Gaza in general. We don't know which child was just killed or lost their parents. We don't know which home was just destroyed, which hospital was further destroyed, but we know what's going on right now. And now we, we know a little bit about what's going on here. But we have the power to change this. I feel strongly that if every single person in the United States right now that is concerned about Gaza would actually just do something like maybe again, or maybe for the first time, phone your senator. If every single one of us did that tomorrow, it wouldn't change the policy overnight, but they would have, they have their fingers to the wind, and suddenly they would realize, whoa, looks like the tide is changing here. And half of them would love it to change. They don't like being APAC puppets. Now some of them, are ideological Zionists. You know, that's, that's the reality. But according to a congressman that I talked to a number a few years ago, he said over half in Congress know what they are doing is wrong, but the Israel they're afraid of the Israel lobby. In other cases, Congress people have privately told individuals, you need to make me do this. You need to create the grassroots movement so that I can do it. If everyone in America did that, it would begin the impact that would bring change. Thank you very much. Hey, Joaquin, I'm out here with Apollos Hester, wide receiver for the Patriots. You guys had one heck of a game tonight. Uh, how'd it go? I mean, it was going a little back and forth. You guys knew it was going to be a tough dogfight out there, and it was. So what were you guys able to do to come back and win this thing? All right, well, at first we started slow. We started real slow. And, you know, that's all right. That's okay, because sometimes in life you're going to start slow. That's okay. We, we, we told ourselves, hey, we're going to start slow. We're going to keep going fast. We're going to start slow, but we're always, always going to finish fast. No matter what the score was, we're going to finish hard. We're going to finish fast. Yeah, they had us the first half. I'm not going to lie. They had us. We weren't defeated, but they had us. But it took guts. It took an attitude. That's all it takes. That's all it takes to be successful is an attitude. And that's what our coach told us. He said, he said, hey, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. You're going to go out there. You're going to battle. You're going to fight. You're going to do it for one. You're going to do it for one another. Do it for each other. You're going to do it for yourself. You're going to do it for us. And you're going to go out with this win. And we believe that. We truly did. And it's, it's an awesome feeling. It's an awesome feeling when you truly believe that you're going to be successful. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the scoreboard, you're going to be successful because you put in all the time, all the effort, all the hard work, and you know that it's going to pay off. And if it doesn't pay off, you continue to give God the glory. If you still lose the game, you continue to get each other's back. And, that, and that's what we realized. Regard, when I lose, we realized that we were going to be all right. It was going to be okay. We're going we're gonna to keep smiling. It was awesome. Baby, I'll feel
Oh